why are we always talking about stigma when sometimes it's the systemic racism that we're responding to that makes us not want to talk about it? It's almost like we're talking about the consequences of systemic inequality, but we're not actually changing systemic inequality. So there's a lot more work that has to be done and it can't just stop with talk about it. Welcome to Mental Radio. I'm your host, Jesse Zuckman, and on this podcast, we talk about all of the ways that people find recovery um, from mental health challenges that we don't really talk about in the mainstream zeitgeist yet. Um, we're talking about things like meditation, nutrition, fitness, but from a mental health um, perspective. Um, we're talking about a whole health, whole mind, whole body perspective that actually helps people heal. And we talk to people who have helped themselves heal. Um, you know, for some people, talk therapy and meds is still part of the equation. But for so many folks in our community who have really found um, recovery and gotten their lives back, they don't just rely on that. We're all doing our own kind of protocols of taking care of ourselves really, really well. Um, and just some of those elements are things like meditation, nutrition, exercise, um, you know, trauma therapies like EMDR and exposure therapies, um, you know, other kind of therapies like dialectical behavioral therapy, which we talk about. You know, these are all things that people maybe they know a little bit about, but they're super powerful. And we talk to patients who have used them in part or in whole to get their lives back. And uh, that's what this conversation is about. And one thing that people don't really talk about, unfortunately yet, is the importance of honoring your cultural background while in the process of recovery. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to our guest today, Imadi. She goes by Depressed While Black on uh, the social medias. And she is an advocate for black folks' mental health. And we started talking um, because somebody posted an article about the Bell Let's Talk campaign and just how it doesn't, how talking and how all of our mental health campaigns to just keep smashing stigma and keep, uh, you know, uh, keep talking is just not enough. You know, we as mental health in the mental health community, we're the only community that thinks talking is enough. It's not enough. And the people who are marginalized in this world need much more than talk. They need material support and they also need cultural sensitivity when it comes to therapy. Um, if you have any kind of outsider status in this world, it is so important to have a therapist who can understand and validate and really, you know, as we talk about in the podcast, really feel what you're going through. So this conversation is about finding those people, um, what it really takes to recover and how we need to change the conversation about mental health in this country from one of, well, let's just keep talking to figuring out what patients need and then creating campaigns to get us the support that we need, um, especially when you're coming from a marginalized community. Uh, you know, whether you're black, you're brown, you're gender nonconforming, um, you know, if you're queer, uh, if you are poor, any of those things require certain considerations. 
And if there's one thing that mental radio is about, it is, uh, you know, fighting to get rid of this idea that there's any kind of one size fits all approach to mental health that just does not work. So, um, Really excited to jump in this conf- into this conversation, but before we get there, uh, please remember that nothing on the podcast is intended to be medical advice or medical care. Um, don't delay in getting care based on anything you hear on the podcast. Don't stop any care. Don't make any changes. You have to talk to your licensed medical practitioner, and we mean that. Um, and if you do like the conversation, please consider supporting us over at mentalhealthmedia.org, where you can make a tax-deductible contribution. You can also buy a mental t-shirt and you can also buy mental radio stickers and you can even buy a mental mascot basho the therapy cat is our mental mascot he's my personal therapy cat and he's looking at me right now and he says if you like the podcast buy a t-shirt make a contribution or buy a sticker with his face on it and you can find all of those things over at mentalhealthmedia.org and if you want to see where the action is on social media, I am at Zookman on Twitter. That's where we post a lot. But before you do any of that, please check out depressedwhileblack.com and throw a couple of shekels in the hat of Amade. She's got a very important campaign, which you will hear more about momentarily. Um, so with all of that homework out of the way, I bring you Amade, Depressed While Black. Hi, Imade. Welcome to Mental Radio. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's so good to hear your voice after uh, connecting um, on Twitter for a little while. Um, super excited to have you. Super excited about the work you're doing. For people who who haven't um, been introduced to you and your work, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, um, my name is Imade. I founded Depressed While Black. It's essentially an online community that shares mental health stories from an African-American lens. Um, This all started when I was at Columbia in around uh, 2014. Um, I basically needed to write a thesis so I can graduate. And I thought, you know, there's nothing I can write about. My life is boring. But then I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I did speed on the highway wanting to die. So maybe I should write about that. Mm. And so um, that thesis kind of talked about my experiences dealing with clinical depression um, and just all the chaos of my mental health symptoms. And so I basically called it Depressed While Black and eventually turned it to an online community. And now I'm looking for ways to kind of help folks offline. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, so when did your mental health story begin? When when you mentioned a little bit in in twenty or in twenty fourteen it was yeah you know basically for the last decade I have been dealing with so much mental health drama um, mm-hmm. the kind of the inklings of it the beginning of it was uh, when I graduated in the, in the middle of the recession around two thousand eight. And um, I had basically no job offers and the internship that I worked for was like, you're great. We want to hire you, but we're losing clients and we, you know, basically we're just trying to keep ourselves open. Um, So I had to wait about seven months after I graduated to get hired. And, you know, I dealt with really intense depression um, during that time. Um, I worked at an advertising job for about two years and was good. You know, I was pretty okay. But then that depression kind of came back um, in like 2012 um, around unemployment and trying to kind of find my way as a writer. 
And I thought that when I got a full scholarship to USC for their graduate journalism program, you know, in 2012, I was like, oh, I'm good. You know, like, this is great. Um, I thought that I would just bounce back and that the depression would be based on circumstances. Um, But my depression was probably even worse um, in L.A. than it was ever. And yeah, I think in December, um, I was basically speeding on a highway, wanting to die. And that was the wake up call of like, yeah, I need help. Um, The next day, um, there were two therapists and they basically said that I need to quit school and I need to get a police escort to the the hospital. Uh, But I was living in South Central L.A. And as a black person, I did not feel safe with the police at all, given the fact the helicopters shook the house all the time and their beams, their light beams bleeding to the house. And I would see police officers chase suspects on my way to school. So that was kind of the origin story of depressed while black was realizing that when black people get help, um, a lot of times we're given the, the rich white person template and that template does not work for us. And that's kind of the origin story of, you know, depressed while black. Yeah. It's like kind of like the opposite of what you need. Like not even like, it's not even like a near miss. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Right. Like they tried, you know, I was literally fighting to not like get in the back of a police car. Like that, that's, it went from me being depressed and me wanting help to like, as long as I'm not in the back of a police car, like that's all I care about is not getting in the back of that police car. So yeah, it was definitely a really, um, an eye opener because I really thought I was going to get therapeutic care. But I mean, the experience that I had is experience a lot of black people have where we're funneled into the punitive system before Mm -hmm. we even get to any type of therapeutic mental health services. Um, So yeah, it was, it was a battle. I just basically negotiated and was like, you know what, I'll just do outpatient. And Mm -hmm, I came mm -hmm. back and, you know, we were going to start a plan to do outpatient care, but, you know, it cost like two, three thousand dollars. I didn't have the money. I was a broke grad student. And so basically, you know, we settled at getting a therapist. And, you know, that was definitely a game changer for me because I got a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. And that kind of like started the journey of like, okay, I have a thing. This thing isn't going away and I need to figure out how to manage it. Right, right. And then, I mean, I mean, it's it's very like crystal clear why why that approach, especially because it is so, you know, uh, when you are acutely suicidal, a lot of yeah. us go from not even knowing we have a mental health problem right. to being in handcuffs, depending on yeah. where you are, what county you're in, right? Yeah. Uh, um, that's very clear of why, you know, a, a, a black person might be, that might be especially like not work. Um, but right. then also in the nuance in, in outpatient therapy, could you speak a little bit about that as well? Because it is something we're talking about now, and this is something we're making so much progress in, but still, I think there's probably a bunch of people out there that don't really know, um, as f- you know, what, what are the nuances that having, um, a black therapist, how does it help you specifically? Yeah, I don't have to translate myself. And I think that's basically what a lot of black folks do in therapy when they have someone who is not culturally competent, um, is that we're constantly having to translate our experiences in a way that the therapist can understand. And when you're focused on translating the experiences and basically teaching your therapist about your culture, you're not focused on your own mental health. 
You know, right. you're, you're focused more on, you know, teaching the therapist and making them feel, you know, comfortable and, and safe. And, you know, you can't really get well if you're thinking about all these other people outside of yourself. Um, and, you know, not every person who is non-Black or non-person of color um, has, you know, there's white people that have the capability of being culturally competent. Um, so I don't want to necessarily say that, like, just because you have a Black therapist, everything's perfect. Um, right. I definitely experienced <laughs> something otherwise. But I you think, mean a Black therapist that didn't work? Yeah. I mean, this is the thing when you're a black person who deals with a stigmatized mental health condition, it's not just the therapist that needs to be black. The therapist also has to be affirming of people who have stigmatized uh, mental health conditions like personality disorders, which is what I have. I have borderline personality disorder. And people with schizophrenia, you know, people who have PTSD, it's not enough just to be black. You do have to be affirming and not be a type of person that, you know, basically is saying you attempted suicide because you want attention or have those kind of knee jerk. Uh, offensive comments like that around your crises. So yeah, it's really mm -hmm. important that you, know, you have a therapist who's culturally competent so that you don't have to constantly translate and basically alter yourself so that they can understand you. And then also they need to really be affirming of your condition and be validating of your emotions. It's not the same, but I can imagine, you know, because we all have certain backgrounds. We all have certain, right. well, maybe, not, maybe not all of us, right? But a lot of us have certain backgrounds, you know, whether you're, you know, uh, you know, Asian or you're from, right. you know, maybe you're from Eastern Europe. You know, we have a lot of Eastern Europeans from like, you know, uh, Ukraine and stuff like where I am, yeah. you know, they don't fit in where, you know, uh, you know, for me, I'm a New York Jew in a place that is very Protestant and yeah. proper and, it made a big difference. I went from one therapist who was also from here, and I would tell him how I felt. I felt like I didn't fit in. You know, I yeah. felt well, I, I, when I, you know, I express myself with my hands. I'm probably a couple of decibels louder than everybody. <laughs> right. I make eye contact. I stand a little bit closer than people do here. Yeah. And I can feel people around me get a little nervous. Right. And someone that grew up here, you know, um, they're not gonna, they can, they, I can tell them and they can understand it. But until I had found a therapist that also came from New York and had a similar background, she's like, no, I, yeah, I feel this, but whatever community you come from, it makes, it can make a big difference when yeah, feeling absolutely. validated in your isolation. Um, so, uh, so I, uh, sorry, I just, uh, went off on, uh, my soapbox there. No, but no, I think that's important. <laughs> yeah. Like I think all of us have a certain kind of criteria we need in a therapist that can understand us. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they give you advice that you can't even really apply because of your cultural, right. you know, community, you know, sometimes they'll be like, you need to stand up to your mom and you just right. need to tell, you know, tell her F you. And you're just like, no, <laughs> like, I can't, mm -hmm. like, like that's not accepted in my culture. And that actually would cause more chaos <laughs> if I actually did that. So yeah, you, you do need people that understand sometimes the cultural norms of the community that you grow up in and the social conditions that you're dealing with. Right, because in like a very like, you know, the kind of Protestant, upper class, white society, 
people are like isolated in a way that like other communities are not, you know, where yeah. you can just say, you know what, screw your whole family, screw your cousins. Right. Just leave. And Yeah. And then no one cares. Like maybe someone says something three years, but like in other communities where we're like in this web, you know, and if you have someone from that, like white Protestant Christian normative upper class, yeah therapy like you're like trying to explain why is this so painful that i lost this sense of belonging because you know you just it's a whole different thing it is it is and i mean definitely those therapists when they told me that i needed to to quit school they didn't even really understand like what's what's your home life like you know right. what experiences are you dealing with i mean it was really kind of bizarre i was just like y'all not going to ask me like is it safe to go home like so it was it was really a a really eye opening experience of just how i was not the rich white person i feel like that they were used to treating right what were they missing in that in that instance <sighs> I think they were missing the fact that, you know, not everyone can go home and that's actually privilege to be mm -hmm. able to, to go home, to be able to have a home. You know, a lot of folks who are in college are where they went from like a homeless shelter to college. You know, mm -hmm. there's there's people who brought a garbage bag, you know, especially sure. folks who come from the foster care system. They're bringing a garbage bag to their dorm. So I really wish that those therapists had the curiosity and just the care to ask me, what what is the home life that I'm going to if I'm leaving my school because of this mental health crisis? And for some folks, the most stable uh, portion of their life was in college. <laughs> you know, a lot right. of folks go from really um, just chaotic homes into college. So yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a wake up call for sure. That was like, is this what the mental health system is like? Like, yeesh. And it's so common now, whenever I see the statistics, like even at university of Washington, I don't remember exactly what it was, but mm -hmm. like, I think it was like above, it was like 10, 20% of the students were homeless. It was like something like that, or just like crowd, you know, couch surfing through. It's unreal. Yeah. You know, so to not know that is like, it's like a little obscene almost, yeah. you know, like, come on, we got to get it together here. Um, yes, <laughs> for sure. And, and then also like just for, for, for institutions to not know that like you need that, that cultural, like that's such a normal thing to know in like everybody that I talk to now in therapy yeah. that like cultural context matters to just be totally ignorant. Absolutely. It's like 20 years old, like 30 years old. Like where are, what, what are people doing? Like you guys get to some seminars already. Like keep up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I think the more that you see like racist rhetoric like invading our space, like invading our political space, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Invading our jobs, you know, the more that you see Trump doing what he's doing, the more this stuff is going to affect you and you're going to want to talk about it with somebody who like understands. And I think, sure. you know, what kind of, there was, I had a, a white therapist for a particular period of time. Um, I think she was a part of the like EAP program that I had. So this was just mm -hmm. basically me just like, I just need to get therapy. Like, I don't really care. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Just give me something sure. for the time being. And the Freddie Gray incident happened. 
And mm. I don't know why she brought this up, but she basically was like, well, you know, he could have just broken his own back. You know, and I was like, no, mm. no, like, I have to get out of here. And that was the last day. I was just like, yeah, this is it. Like sometimes like <sighs> like racial stuff like that will come into the therapy room. And it's not necessarily that you're trying to like start the conversation because you're black and you're like, yeah, I don't think she can hang. But sometimes they right. will bring it up and you just be like, oh gosh, like I don't even want to know any more about your politics. I need to get out of here. And it's, it's, it's hard because you're, you should not feel like on edge and like, oh my right. gosh, what is this lady going to say next in a therapy right. session? Um, so yeah, I'm just so glad that I, I knew that I'm worth you know, mental health care. I'm worth compassionate, culturally competent care. And so I'm glad that I got out of it. And I think that's something that we do need to tell people who are mental health consumers is like, you don't have to sit and like take that. Like you can mm. go and find something better. I, that That is one of the my favorite things to know. But, you know, oftentimes when we're in yeah. the hell, like we make, you know, a lot of people, you know, that, that grow up with childhood trauma, like our survival mechanism is to make ourselves small and yeah. like wallflowers and not, and make not advocate for yourself. Exactly. Like that's how we got through, you know, into adulthood is, you know, that's our survival. But like at right. a certain point, that doesn't help. I'm really glad you brought this up because I was watching one of your videos. It was for uh, a mental health uh, nonprofit. And you yeah. talked about just having the epiphany of knowing that you are worth recovery and care and support. I, I shed a tear. I have to be wow. completely honest with you. It was... I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not to get up, <laughs> but it was so beautiful. Could you talk a little bit about um, you find, just having that realization that you are worth care and recovery and, and finding um, the support that works for you? Yeah, it took a long time. It was something that was just, I feel like a tiny seed, you know, in 2012 when those therapists were like, you need to be, you know, in a, in a police car. Like it just was this kind of tiny seed. And I feel like in some ways I was like radicalized <laughs> like through this. And I think that's what happens to a lot of mental health consumers is that we're just like, you know what? I don't need, I don't have to take this. You know, I don't have to go through this. This is not how I heal and I'm worth, you know, the healing. And I think it was a process of like my best friend and my mom who just became so supportive and became kind of a rock for me when I was dealing with, you know, hospitalization and a lot of chaotic things that were happening. And I just started seeing like, wow, like they're supporting me, I guess, I'm special. Like, I guess I'm, I'm worth the, the care. It took a while. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the turning point for me happened, um, like my second, like my second suicide attempt was around basically two years ago to this month. And, um, I, I thought I had a great system in place. I mean, I had a really great therapist. Um, I had a really great psychiatrist, I thought, but that second suicide attempt, it just threw them off. They were just like, what's going on? Like you were fine and then now you're not. And, and then I had a psychiatrist and he's like, well, maybe you have borderline personality disorder, but you have a job and you're not that wild and crazy. So it was just like, I was just 
getting so much like offensive comments from them. Like, and I had the therapist that I had and she was a black woman and she was an amazing therapist. But I think this was a blind spot for her dealing with people who have chronic suicidality. And she basically just told me that I need to take my medicine. And I, and she didn't listen to the fact that like I over, I, I kind of like self-harmed. And so I don't really feel comfortable with that medicine. And so I basically was like, yeah, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Like, I don't really, I think I need to, need to get better mental health professionals. And I started like imagining myself like living in the future and imagining, okay, what does it take to like keep me alive? And I started like realizing like I have to make these changes. Like these changes are not going to happen by themselves. Like I'm going to have to make the, a life that I feel like is worth living and it took a process of me basically moving the puzzle pieces around of my mental health treatment to get to a place where I had therapists that actually said, yeah, this is kind of what you have. Um, it took me basically a decade to understand that I have borderline personality disorder. The reason why my life was so chaotic is because nobody diagnosed me. I had a un, I had like undiagnosed borderline personality disorder. And so everybody's mm-hmm. giving me all these different treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is great, mm-hmm. but it I don't respond to it because people with BPD respond to dialectical behavioral therapy. So I basically if I didn't move those two pieces out the way and look for other uh, physicians and, and professionals who were going to actually put a name to what my suffering is, like I would not be here today. And I think that mm-hmm. was kind of the game changer for me. Mm-hmm. Could you uh, talk a little bit about DBT? Because this is, it's, 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 a, it's a therapy that started here in Seattle. Um, yeah. That is like, you cannot take two steps outside um, and not run into somebody talking about DBT outside <laughs> of this area though. It's not as well known. Um, it's not. Could you, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about it, what it is and, and how it helps you and how it works? Yeah. Um, I didn't really. Okay. So there's, when I talk about racial inequality in the mental health system, I'm also talking about inequality of knowledge. And a lot of times mm-hmm. who gets exposed to mental health innovation, they're basically rich and white and a lot of black folks mm-hmm. We get funneled to really like sometimes untrained social workers who are so busy, their caseload is so busy, they don't have the leisure time to just research about dialectical behavioral therapy. And so there for a long period of time, I was exhibiting textbook chronic suicidal um, chaotic experiences that would be great for DBT, but I never, I had no exposure to it. I basically had to beg my therapist to tell me what is wrong with me in order to get to DBT. And so basically my entry point into DBT was um, like a book that one of my therapists gave me years before the diagnosis. And it didn't really click until around 2019 that I was like, oh, I think I have BPD. I think this is going to help me. And so basically dialectical behavioral therapy, from my experience, is basically the confluence of uh, acceptance and change. And through these, like, the four kind of modules of, I believe it's what, mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, distress tolerance, and what's the other, there's a like fourth module. 
But basically, it's for people who have really intense emotional pain and they need to find ways to tolerate that distress so that they don't make the situation worse. And that's basically my whole life (laughs) has been (laughs) me having intense emotional pain responding in a way that makes it worse and causing way more relational chaos than is necessary. And just through learning the mindfulness tools that kind of helped me get through an intense emotional mood swing. It's been really helpful. So a lot of things that I do are deep breathing. Um, I do grounding techniques, kind of being aware of my environment and kind of getting out of my head that helps me through the panic attacks. It helps me through the really intense depression. Um, Yeah, all of these things um, are kind of keeping me and helping me be alive. And so I took an intro course um, when I was living in the Bay Area, but the DBT techniques and stuff, it really didn't like resonate with me because I was going through an environmental crisis of housing instability. And so a lot of times therapy is great, but if you're going through a serious like environmental trauma, like you really do have to kind of get rid of that so that you can be plugged into the therapy. And so now I'm in DBT class. I started um, in January and like it's really resonating with me because I'm in a much more stable environment and I can actually like practice the skills without kind of this constant, how can I keep myself alive with a roof over my head? So now I'm like a lot more calm and I can able to do these things. And yeah, it's been, it's been a game changer for me for sure. And it's helped me because, um, I never really responded to medication and that's kind of also the problem when you have an undiagnosed condition is that your people are throwing medicine at you, but they don't really know what they're treating because they haven't diagnosed the actual condition that you're going through. And so DBTs helped me a lot because medicine really hasn't helped me. And so I've been able to use something to kind of diffuse uh, my intense symptoms without having, you know, to take all these different meds and all these awful side effects. Oh yeah. I've been through that. We, we actually, our stories overlap uh, quite a bit and a couple of things you said, um, you know, number one, just like, you know, I, you know, I, I was able to do a lot in my career, but you know, when I got sick, your savings only last, especially in New York city. Yeah. Like I was disabled. I was as broke as anybody within three months, <laughs> you know? And at that yeah. point I had to rely on Medicare and Medicaid for yeah. my, um, for, for my, the access to my, um, mental health services. And I had the same experience where I would go, I went to all these different people. No one could do anything that helped me feel better. Right. And it wasn't until I started like looking up on PubMed, what are breakthroughs in bipolar disorder look like? What are Mm -hmm. different treatments that Mm -hmm. work? And no one that I had ever talked to knew about any of them. Yep. You know, it wasn't until I started doing my own research that I could find, you know, just smarter, more current people. And actually, once I figured out what those things were, I were I was able to find them covered by Medicare and Medicaid. Oh, that's but it great. Took me, yeah, it took me. Washington's really good. Washington State uh, Medicaid uh, pays for naturopathy. They pay for like what? That's amazing. Yeah. It's really, uh, it's more, it's more progressive. That EM, I have an EMDR therapist on on Medicaid. Um, it's 
really better than a lot of other places, but it always depends on your state. So if you're listening to this, you might have more access than you think you do um, or might, you know, and I'm, I, I need to do a whole podcast just on getting services and navigating yeah, that. Yeah, that would be great. But it wasn't until, you know, I started doing the research that I figured what I was missing out because I just figured, hey, I'm going to this person. They've trained right. their whole life to do this. They should know all of the options. They don't know all of the options. They don't all. know all the <laughs> options and they will act like they do. Right. And like they don't. And so you do have to know that too. Like when they're really just putting on a front, like when yeah. you have like a stigmatized, like I said, when you have a stigmatized <laughs> mental health condition, a yeah. lot of times you're forced to be your own psychiatrist because yeah. like they, sometimes they'll know about how to treat anxiety. You know, they mm -hmm. may know how to treat like textbook depression, but some right. of these other conditions, they have a blind spot. And so you're sure. basically kind of teaching the psychiatrist. And when it gets to that point, oh, you need yeah. a new one. <laughs> like that's how I oh, feel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And at the best, like if you do find a really good doctor, like you still might know, have a, you know, know a new thing or two, but they will work yeah. with you. Um, Absolutely. I had so many. So many doctors I would go into, hey, here's a study. It's from Stanford. Um, and it has like, you know, 70% of people felt better on this. Uh, should I try this? No, that's stupid. You know, or that that's not proven. Like if you get a, a dismissive psychiatrist. Absolutely, yeah. I, I went through a million of them. That, get rid of that person. <laughs> yes. They're not validating your emotions or your curiosity or your need to get better. And you need to exactly. yes, get rid of them. Yeah, ketamine exactly. is my that ketamine is like literally like my golden drug. Like I will go oh, to these really? psychi these I will go to these doctors' offices and like ketamine. How can we get access to this? Like mm -hmm. what? Like what can we do? And yeah, I I felt like I was met with a lack of imagination, and I think that mm -hmm. is something that is really crucial to people who have conditions that are that are basically on the cusp of where like innovation, mental health innovations are happening is like, you do need a psychiatrist who can imagine you feeling better and can mm. imagine new modalities to help you get better. And it, it is kind of hard when you're coming into an office and you're more imaginative when it comes to treatment than they are. And they're not really willing to go on a journey that's kind of uncharted because not everybody right. responds to medicine the same way. So why mm. are you giving me the same meds that a million of the people been on if I keep telling you I don't really respond? So yeah, you do need kind of psychiatrists and people who are willing to take risks and willing to try new things. If I had, if I had what you just said recorded 10 years ago, it would have saved me probably about six years of my life. So wow. that's, uh, <laughs> that's when <laughs> oh I, need to, I need to, uh, I need to save that, uh, that quote in a, in a context and put it or in a, in a clip and, and put it out there because it's so true. And there's just so much out there and not everybody yeah. re responds. I, I've never found a med that made me feel better for more than like maybe two weeks at most. Oh my goodness. Um, I had one you know, good year. I had one good oh, year. Oh, really? Yeah, mm -hmm. but then it just went right downhill right after that. But I, but I do kind of hold that year to my heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that doesn't mean that we're all anti psychiatry. It doesn't no. mean that like we want to burn it down. It doesn't mean that we're conspiracy theorists. It just means well, these things didn't work, or in some cases, 
they make some of us worse, you know? Yeah. Doesn't mean it doesn't work for some other people. <laughs> you know? like, if there is a medication that comes out to help people with borderline personality disorder, I will be the first in line. Okay. Like <laughs> anything that can help me, I'm first in line for that. I'm just yeah. saying that studies have shown that people with BPD don't typically respond to medicine. So that's why right. that kind of cycle of being on meds, it doesn't make sense for me. Right, right, right. I never thought about that as far as like the crossover. It's like because you have like those extreme emotions because I'm someone that has extreme emotions too. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little bit more in the bipolar realm, but like just thinking about that, like it kind of makes more sense because for me too, like my healing came through just getting educated about how emotions work right. and how trauma responses work and, you know, you know, and I, I meditate to go deeper into my emotions so I can experience them more like – fully and move through them um yeah thanks um but yeah like like so i never thought about it like from uh from a perspective of like a borderline kind of thing but it kind of makes sense that like just masking it wouldn't help me kind maybe in a similar way i don't yeah. know yeah yeah, um, you know, there's just less research on people with personality disorders, and that's mm -hmm. why I, I do think that in, in our mental health awareness campaigns, we need to really include people with personality disorders, people with schizophrenia, you know, people with stigmatized mental health conditions, because our experiences can be totally different, and what can help you sure. may actually be a detriment to me. And so we do need mm -hmm. a diversity of people with conditions so that we can actually say this campaign actually represents people, you know, For if sure. you're only showing people who have conditions that have really well-developed research, like mm -hmm. it's going to be totally different than somebody who has a condition that there's just not a lot of research about. It's just a totally different experience. Yeah, for sure. It's not just all mood disorders, unipolar depression. Um, yeah. So on and so forth. The, um, the other thing that you said, just to backtrack uh, a moment, and this kind of gets us into the crux of what, what sparked right. this conversation. <laughs> Was the housing, how important housing, secure yeah. housing was for you for your recovery. Um, this is also something I had no idea about. I, you know, was, I have been living in not a great situation for a long time. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't until like, honestly, that I knew that my rent was going to get paid. And it took years for me to figure that out, that wow. I could yeah. actually relax and do the emotional work. Um could you tell us a little bit about just why it's important and how it helped you to have the housing piece secure? Yeah, I mean, housing stability is a form of suicide prevention. I mean, and even there was a study that said, even when it comes to the minimum wage, if you can raise the minimum wage by just $1, we would significantly reduce suicide. So economic stability is a form of suicide prevention because it helps you see yourself existing in the future. You know, if you if you don't know where your housing is going to be in the next week, it's really difficult to project yourself and see yourself living in the future if you don't know how you're going to live you know, a week from now. And so, yeah, it's like really important. And like living out in the Bay, it just felt like the city was trying to like kick me out the whole time I was there, you know? And sometimes, I, you know, I lived in New York and sometimes New York was like that. But I think it's a whole other level where people are running out living rooms. You know, I was living in a living room um, in the Bay Area and, um Sometimes it's just that one little thing that is like a match to your mental illness. And the one little yeah. thing for me was mice. 
I was just like, not only am I living in a living room for about, what, $1,200 a month. Not only that, there's a my situation. And the instability of not knowing where that mice is, that mouse is, it totally messed me up. I was, I went, I was on my way to work and I was on the train platform and I just told my mom, I'm dead. I can't do this. Like, mm-hmm. like I'm not going to, I can't make it. And like when you already have like a mental illness that can really like amplify, like it can really change your mood quickly like very quickly when you have that type of instability it's like too much to hold yourself up and so the game changer for me was that I had a co-worker who let me live in his house like under the table it was like the house was so old it was a slumlord that owned it but that kind of gave me a little bit more breathing room so that I can focus on okay how am I feeling and not where am I going to live um, right. And then now, you know, I moved back into my mom's house, which, of course, I definitely want to say is privileged to be able to move back into your mom's house rent free. But that's been really the key to me focusing on my mental wellness is the fact that, like, I can think about how do how do I practice these DBT skills and not sure. how do I get enough money to pay rent? You know, it's a game changer for me. So, yeah, housing is a suicide prevention resource for sure. I love it. I love it. That's such a good way to say it. So this is why we kind of started talking uh, on Twitter recently was um, an article um, that was uh, about mental health patients needing less talk and more action, especially around the uh, in response to the Bell Let's Talk um, campaign. It was written by Phil... Moscovich um, in Globe and Mail. And I'll just, for for our listeners, I'll just quote um, a little bit of the article so we know what we're talking about, what we're talking about, and then we can kind of talk about how it applies. Um, so uh, Philip says, it's hard to, it's hard to argue with raising awareness and fighting stigma, but those things don't do much to help people who are living in precarious housing or trying to find a way to pay for antipsychotic medication, which can cost thousands a year. There's little evidence that these kinds of campaigns have any significant effect on changing people's beliefs or behavior. A study published in the medical journal The Lancet in 2015 said that when it comes to medium and long-term effectiveness of anti-stigma campaigns, there is some evidence effectiveness in improving knowledge and attitudes, but not for behavioral outcomes. In other words, people might change the way they think, but not how they behave. Um, so this is this is kind of what we're talking about. You know, we for most people's you know point where they're they're touching mental health or seeing mental health is these kinds of campaigns. And um, you know, with with Bell Let's Talk, I'm sure most of our listeners are probably on on social media and they're seeing everybody talking on Bell Let's Talk. You know, the the current mental health hashtags are, you know, hashtag keep talking mental health. Um, hashtag smash stigma is very popular. Um, and it's almost always let's keep talking. It's like yeah. Let's just keep talking and somehow just if we keep talking, that will get support for the people who need it. And I agree talking is a starting point, but I don't think that um, talking is 
a means to an end necessarily. And sometimes for some people, talking can be used in place of action. You know, it's very right. easy for people to, you know, if they know somebody with a mental illness to make a tweet with a hashtag instead of actually figuring out how to get them supported. Um, that's my soapbox. How do you feel about um, how, how, what was your reaction um, to this article? Yeah, and, and totally how do you feel agreed. about? Yeah, how do you, what do you think of the are uh, are the, these kinds of stigma smashing um, uh, campaigns that we spend a lot of money doing? I think you know we need to interrogate the help we get when we ask for help, and a lot of times they these kind of mental health awareness campaigns make you feel that as soon as I ask for help, everything's going to be fine. Everything's right. going to be perfect. I'm not going to be discriminated against. I'm not going to be over-medicated or under-medicated. Like everybody's going to listen to me. And like, right. we don't prepare people for what happens after they ask for help. And that can be a disservice to them because, you know, I, they can be like me. I'm just walking into the student counseling office. I know I'm really depressed. I'm asking for help. I didn't know that police would be involved. It's really, a, it's really jarring. It's a really jarring experience when you're not prepared for the help you get when you're going to ask for help and when you're not given a realistic understanding of what the help is. But that this is the thing, though, is that the people who run these mental health campaigns are not using the services because they don't need it because they don't have mental illness. And so right. sometimes they're telling you to use these resources that they've never used and so from the outside, they're saying these resources are great, but they don't have the lived experiences to say this is what is actually going to happen when you use these services. And so you do need, we need people with lived experiences. And I would say we need frequent flyers. We need people who have been hospitalized a lot, you know, yeah. who have dealt with um, using mental health services a lot to tell us, okay, what does this really look like? How can I navigate this in a way that is empowering for me, in a way that I can be an advocate and I can take up space and I can declare what my needs are? But a lot of times, you know, they're just like, you know, go, just go, you know, just go to this thing and you're going, but you don't really know how to navigate the system. And so I do think, you know, we need to focus on the help like just as much as we focus on talking. And then we got to kind of get out of this rut, in my opinion, where we're basically like blaming people for like <laughs> being mentally ill. And I think you have to do a delicate balance because if you focus on the fact that this person didn't ask for help, you don't have to do any type of systemic changes. You don't have to interrogate the system. Well, shouldn't the system be proactive? Shouldn't the system be preventative? Shouldn't like mental health awareness be a part of our everyday lives so that people are not ashamed to ask for help? Like, why is the onus on the sickest people in the room to do the most work? And that's something right. that we really need to question ourselves. Why are we, and I'm just going to go through, you know, talk about a black lens. The majority mm -hmm. of the conversations that we have when it comes to black mental health is the stigma and that black folks are praying away. That is happening. Mm -hmm. I have done that for years. It's caused me a lot of suffering and we do need to talk about it. But if we had a mental health system that was embedded in our communities, there would be far less stigma. You know, we do need to kind of question why are we always talking about stigma 
when sometimes it's the systemic racism that we're responding to that makes us not want to talk about it. It's almost like we're talking about the consequences of systemic inequality, but we're not actually changing systemic inequality. So there's a lot more work that has to be done, and it can't just stop with talk about it. Right. Or even acknowledge what the material trauma is that we are responding to. Yes. Whether that's systemic racism, whether that's child abuse, whether that's, you know, whatever it is. But there are real things that we're all responding to uh, who have, you know, been through this system that, you know, maybe you're suggesting, you know, is a little bit invalidated when it's just, you know, it's just, okay, you're this way, all you have to do is ask for help and that's it. And it's just a very narrow juvenile kind of conversation. I mean, for me, what, 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 um, you know, was inspiring um, when I looked at your work and made me really want to have this conversation um, was the kind of the discrepancy between your own kind of call to action and what we see out there in stigma smashing land where yeah. what you do it will tell you I'm not I don't want to say what you do tell uh, tell our audience how, what you raise money for and and and, and how that works. I mean, basically what I do is I try to help people. uh, I have a focus on uh, treating and helping black people who have life-threatening depression through my advocacy and through raising the unique needs that we have. Um, And so that is a different focal point than what a lot of the mental health campaigns are. They're, 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 sometimes their focus is on people with less severe mental health conditions who maybe they do respond great to talk therapy and that's all they need. And so mm-hmm. I think that it's all I have a different focus because I'm focusing on people who need more than talk to right. be able to treat their their mental health conditions. What I was really inspired by, I mean, not that I'm not inspired by that. I think that's important and, you know, it's crucial that especially, especially when you start understanding how recovery worked. I have talked to, I don't know, I'm up, we're up, this is podcast 18 and most of these have been patients. Every single patient says the same thing, that they had unique needs. They needed to figure out what those needs were. They need yeah. to try uh, different solutions depending on those unique needs. It's all tailored to the individual. So having right. like any of these like kind of campaigns that hyper generalizes is yeah. maybe it's harmful, possibly. Um, but for me, you know, I see – I get frustrated with people um, just wanting to talk instead of act. And you're actually raising money to – give people tangible material goods that they need when they're in an inpatient to have them be more supported, um, which is like an entirely different kind of idea. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, it's like, instead of let's keep talking about it, we're talking your, you know, your intervention as well. Let's have people be supported by, um, uh, you know, by, by having people donate um, objects that they need when they are in inpatient. 
Yeah, basically two years ago this month, I was being released from the, the mental hospital with a brown paper bag and clothes from the lost and found. I mean, it looked like I just got out of prison. <laughs> I mean, I just Jeez, was like, yeah. I looked awful because I had nothing when I came in because I was so, you know, my, my I had to have an ambulance come and get me from my apartment. When you need an ambulance to come and get you from your apartment, you're not going to remember your keys. You're not going to remember to pack a nice little to-go bag. You know, you're not going to remember to bring a change of clothes. And so when I got to the hospital, um, I had nothing. And for some of us who come from small towns, we don't live with our families because we have to leave in order to find jobs. So I didn't have a support system in the area that I was in. And so because of the way I looked and how awful I looked, um, they basically were like, in order for you to get to the cafeteria, you need to get these clothes and you need to get a pair of shoes from the lost and found. Like your mental health services are connected to how you look in a mental hospital. And so even though I'm like, yeah, you know, we need to have, you know, folks with mental health conditions who are in the hospital, they need pants, they need shoes, they need, um, some of them are African-American, so they need black hair care products, you know, I am definitely focusing on the material needs that they have, but they also need to look good in order to get treated better because the way the hospital system is set up sometimes it's based upon how you look is based upon if, if you're wearing nice clothes and you're presenting well, they may be more willing to engage with you. They may be more willing to trust and believe what you're saying. It's, all connected, man. And, and so it's even bigger than like getting like material needs met for people. It's giving them the dignity and the confidence so that they can advocate for themselves. Because when I was in the hospital, especially my first time, um, I was forced to wear uh, medical gowns because basically they were, they didn't like uh, the, the way that I expressed how I was not pleased with the services there. And so I got physically restrained. I got threatened with drug injection. I got uh, put in an isolation room. And basically they were like, you know, you can't wear regular clothes. You have to wear medical gowns. And um, that was hard for me because sometimes that's the only thing you have in a mental hospital is your creativity and the way you present yourself is your personal style. That's all you have in there. Everything else is dictated. So to be able to make a choice on what clothes you wear, it can be really empowering. And so when you strip that away, you're stripping away someone's self-expression. And I wanted to get out of there. That hospital was not good for me. Um, I've, I've I've attended better a better hospital. I don't want to yeah. all say they're bad, uh, but that particular one was pretty bad. And so I had to go in front of a state supreme court judge um, to present my case and how I want to leave and be treated um, at home with my mom in North Carolina. And basically how they brought me to the courtroom was literally like a huge setup. They brought me there in a gurney (laughs) with like my medical, like medical gown on. And I didn't have any shoes. I just had those socks on, those like hospital socks. And so just imagine the power dynamic, the power imbalance of you're wearing these like, you know, medical hospital issue clothes and you're up against your psychiatrist who is in a professional attire, you know, 
and she's a person that has degrees and licenses and she she's the first person that's going to say she's the first person that speaks in this court case and so there's a huge power dynamic that goes on and so i think you know in addition to meeting material needs is just giving people a sense of power a sense of self expression a sense of dignity that gives them the confidence to speak up for themselves in these hospitals so I'm doing this because I'm trying to give what I didn't have in that situation, which was the ability to present myself into the world in the way that I wanted to. And if people want to contribute to your efforts, the website is depressedwhileblack.com. Your PayPal, Venmo, Cash App links are there if you want to make um, if you want to contribute to a different type of mental health campaign, um, if you were in charge of Bell Let's Talk, wow! And you know, not to put you on the <laughs> not not to put you on the spot. Right, Maybe we could right. brainstorm a little bit here. We could, you know, we could go at this together. But uh, what, how, what would you? How would you change it? I mean, I think I would focus on the most marginalized people. And I think that, you know, the way the mental health system is, it caters to the most privileged. And I think we need to subvert that. We need to, if I was in charge of Belt, Let's Talk, you would see a whole lot of black trans women in that campaign. And because, I mean, what black trans women are going through is no joke. A life expectancy of maybe mid-30s. I mean, it's we living in such a transphobic environment. I believe the suicide statistic, attempt rate for trans folks, gender nonconforming folks, is maybe like forty percent. Like it is, we're it's a full blown crisis that we're not talking about because the people who run the campaigns are also oftentimes focusing on the most privileged people. And so, yeah, I would definitely be focused on connecting with the trans and gender nonconforming folks. I would be connected with Trans Lifeline. They do an amazing job with with um, their kind of crisis, like calls that they take. And I believe they don't call the police if you're like going through like a situation. And I think that's really great. I think, yeah, we need to bring more of the progressive uh, mental health activists into the fold. We need to bring more of a grassroots activism um, to Bell Lex Talk. And really, I I think the thing is that Bell Lux talk is, is I think we still need to have it. I don't think it should be obsolete, but it needs to have legs. It needs to be grounded like in local communities so that people who have the most um, severe conditions, they, they feel that, they experience the benefit of it. And I think that's sometimes what happens with these stigma elimination campaigns is typically the most privileged people get the benefits of it. But you really do need a, a stigma elimination campaign that's going to affect what's happening on the ground when it comes to people who are the most marginalized. So yeah, I would kind of start with that, just, just center the people who are, you know, the most marginalized in our community and connect with more progressive and kind of more innovative mental health uh, activist organizations. But yeah, what are, what do you think? I mean, I would, I would, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And, you know, as a part of that, you know, because, you know, I, I haven't really thought about this all that much until now. So if, if I'm saying anything that's a little unprocessed, I, I apologize, but I, you know, I also look at the most marginalized people in the society and, you know, just thinking about, 
um, you know, what we are talking about as far as the housing, you know, the the the, the homelessness yes. rates for trans folks yes. in our communities is off the chart. Yes. And then we're wondering why they don't get, you know, why they don't get better. And, yeah. you know, so I would love for a call to action be make sure your friends, family and associates don't have to worry about finding a place to sleep. Absolutely. Not have, you know, get, you know, give them some time and some space to pay the rent, you know, yes. like that might sound outrageous. I don't care because that's what we need. <laughs> right. Whether if you're just poor in the society, and this is a really income inequality society. So yes. there's a lot of people that have this problem. It's not it's not just a few people, you know. Right. You can see it the most at the edges, but where a lot of us are dealing with this. And we need, you know, all of us who are like, this society doesn't really work for all that well when we get sick. We need housing and yes. that's going to help everybody. So I don't know. What do you think of that? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like why is mental health in a silo? You know, that's my yeah. question because I'm not just dealing with a mental health issue. I'm dealing with a housing issue, job instability mm -hmm. issue, you know, all these different things, you know? So if I was running Bell Let's Talk, it would be in conjunction with other organizations that can also yeah. help, you know, eliminate, uh, barriers to mental wellness. So why can't Bell Let's Talk be, you know, a fight for 15, you know, like a wage uh, campaign? Why can't we have different campaigns related to different uh, like structural concerns when it comes to mental health? Yeah, I, I feel like why is it in the silo? It should be with other organizations. It should really, you know, coexist with other grassroots uh, organizations that are fighting for it you know, the end of inequality, whether it's economics, whether it's, you know, housing, whatever it is. But yeah, I think that mental health is, is mental health campaign should really be a, a glue campaign that's connected to yeah. a lot of different things. Yeah. I mean, it just breaks my heart. I mean, we talk so much smashing stigma, smashing stigma. Meanwhile, how many of our middle class and well-to-do people have literally walked over a homeless person yep. who was, you know, you know, just visibly, you know, probably psychotic. Yeah. Um, that I've never seen that. I'm I'm the only person that I've ever seen tweet smash smash stigma <laughs> and talk about homelessness and like. But we all live with it. Like that yes. is stigma. The fact that you can't that we can't acknowledge. Okay, there's a human being. Do they need a, a cup of coffee? Can we do that? Can we start with a cup of coffee? Yeah. For God's sake, <laughs> like yeah. That's I mean, that's stigma. what the guy <laughs> said in the article. He said that the people that are so sick can't even walk into these mental health galas, even if they wanted to. Right. If we can't, right. if these folks that are the most sick that are can't even come to these mental health organizations, then we have a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and to your point, also, you know, are the people that need the the products that you're talking about, and then you know, a pair of clothes to advocate for themselves yeah. at like just some basic level, so people can just see their uh, their humanity. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I you know, it needs to just go from the bottom up. I think mental mental health stigma elimination. It's 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 kind of 
it's it's kind of at the top right now. It's at the top 1%. Mm-hmm. It's at the top, you know, when it comes to rich people. And it needs to be a bottom-up. Yeah. It needs to be a grassroots campaign. And I think mm-hmm. that it's happening, you know. I definitely feel like it's happening. I think that we just have to find ways to just make this struggle an interconnected struggle so that, like, people aren't by themselves as they're trying to fight, you know, this inequality. For sure, for sure. Well, let's talk. Let's end on that. Let's talk about the good news because there is a lot of new stuff. I know, like the the project I'm working on here, mental. When I got sick, I was looking for alternatives, or not even alternatives, but adjacent um, therapies. I just wanted to know what was available. You know, when I started looking for different things to try seven years ago, six years ago, the only thing I could find was one single. Um, New York Times article about wow. uh, a gentleman who stopped his meds. Who was bipolar? It was like a similar person to me, similar age, uh, male, um, similar background, and like he just stopped caffeine, started eating well, uh, took his social security to Argentina, and was able to recover. That was the only. I was like, okay, that's kind of interesting. That exists. I have no idea how to yeah. do that. I don't know if that yeah. if that was, is real. And now. If I got sick again, not even just my project, but a lot of adjacent projects of people talking about holistic health, you know, if drugs aren't the, don't get you where you want to be, um, you know, now people are educating each other on options. And I kind of, you know, that's amazing. And I think that's true in the work that you're doing as well. Like, it's like, it went from not existing to being an active community that's easy to find. There's like an infrastructure that's like being built. I mean, when I first was talking about mental health, you know, there was no therapy for black girls therapy uh, directory. You know, there was none of that. And now you see an infrastructure being created to help people, uh, black folks who have mental health needs. And so you have the the trans and queer people of color uh, therapy uh, therapist network. So you can have a network there. Um, You have to see the amazing work that beam is doing Um, that's run by uh, Yolo Akil. And he does like mental health education workshops that are helping folks who need healing justice and who need to kind of begin to embrace, you know, their identity outside of a toxic masculinity lens. I mean, there's so many great things that are happening right now. And it kind of gives me hope, like, oh, I don't have to do everything. And I think as a mental health advocate right now, that's something that I'm really embracing. It's like, I don't have to do everything. I can just do my little part. And I know that there's plenty of people that are are assisting with the work that needs to be done. And so, yeah, I think it's a great time. It is a great time to talk, you know, (laughs) tying into the bell, let's talk. I think it's a great time to talk, but I think it's more so due to the fact that we are creating the infrastructure to, you know, heal ourselves. You have any resources for folks? That they should check yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know, I definitely Beam. Um, I believe it's like Beam dot org. Um, they offer like mental health workshops, um, and they they're basically around the country, but they're based in LA. Um, I would say definitely check out Therapy for Black Girls if you're looking for um, a therapist as a Black woman, um, the trans and, and people of color, queer people of color therapist network. Um, yeah, there's just 
there's a lot of things that are like cropping up. And if you're in like Philadelphia, I think there's like a Black Men Heal organization that gives eight free therapy sessions to uh, men of color. Um, so yeah, really, it's, yeah, it's it's starting to really kind of pick up. And I think there's a yeah. new um, task force that's being created to prevent black youth suicide because the black youth suicide statistics have really increased in a really disturbing way. And there's a being a task force that's like being created. I think that we're we're finally having these conversations, and it's not just ending in conversations; it's ending in action. Um, and I just hope for more and more of this to just continue to grow. I think it's a big sign that what we're doing is working a little bit, not just like in mm-hmm. organizing, but also like we're getting better. Yeah. Um, you know, wherever, not not to include myself, um, you know, in, in all the projects you mentioned, but in just all yeah, of I agree. the peer, in all of the peer led projects, like it's not like if I just went out and said like, okay, everybody should eat a whole bunch of vegetables and make eat protein and yada, yada. But it doesn't end there. Like people see us getting better. They see us doing the work right. that we're all doing and we're being vulnerable and public for the first time right. with that. And people just want to be a part of it. And then they say, oh, you know what? I feel a little bit better now doing whatever it is that other people are doing. And that just kind of like adds a lot of energy and I think that's kind of what's happening now. I think you can't underestimate consistency even if it's literally the smallest effort you ever you can make because you're dealing with severe mental health issues which has been kind of my case the most that I was able to do is just tweet <laughs> you know like for yeah. um, for years you know that was all I can do I'm just starting to think okay how can I take my experiences and use it to help others you know, in real life, I'm just well enough to start beginning to ask myself these questions. But sometimes in those moments where you're just tweeting and you're just kind of chipping away at the stigma, like people see that there was a person that was like, I've been like following you since I'm like 17. And every time that I've been going through something, I saw a post that really resonated with me. And now I'm 22. And you're just like, whoa, like, I just thought I was barely making it and like not doing well at all. But there are people that are like looking at us and are seeing the consistency. And even if we're struggling, but we're consistently talking about it, that can be really inspiring too. And so I just like really encourage people to like recognize that there is a power in consistency, even if it's just the smallest, tiniest thing that you're doing. For sure. For sure. Um, Anything we left out of Made? Man, I think we covered a lot. I mean, if there's my one thing that I would ask you as a person that I consider an OG, as a person (laughs) that has been pursuing, you know, out the box mental wellness tools for so long is like, okay, what do you do if you want to take something, you want to take supplements, but you don't know where to begin and you don't have natural path money because I don't. Right. What do you do? Are you asking me like actually or should we work on that? Yeah, this? like actually. Um well the first thing I would make do is to like make sure there's not a way into naturopathy. Um because okay. um one well, like if you're in Washington State and you qualify for Medicaid, right, you might be able to see some of the best. Um if there is a school around, um like here, I mean I live like literally five miles from Bastyr, which is one of the top 
ND oh, schools wow. in the in country. So you can like they have campuses all over, and you can just go. I think it's like fifteen dollars, and they have you know they have supervisors, so you kind of see a doctor through a student kind of thing. Oh, that's um, cool. I would. Yeah, if something like that is available, or even if it's like a drive to go to, um, it might make sense. Um, the third thing, if you couldn't access any of those before trying any supplements, I would try to just find a really good general practitioner that your insurance does cover and okay. make sure they can do complete labs because okay. it's very often not about the fancy supplements. It's like more often than not, there's a lot of low hanging fruit in this game where mm -hmm. there's like, you know, vitamin D, it could be uh, vitamin C, it could be like like really basic stuff. Um, so that's the third thing. Just make sure you can get complete, it could be thyroid, right? If you have a thyroid yeah. problem, that could be depression, that could be, it could, you know, that could manifest physical symptoms, anxiety, all kinds of stuff. Um, so if you got all of those things, um, what would my neck, the book, I'm reluctant to like, I'm very reluctant to say, uh, to suggest specific things because, mm -hmm. you know, we talk about how um, specialized, you know, recovery is. And when it comes to yeah. supplements, it's even more so. Um, so the risk is if, you know, you can ask a lot of different people what works for them, just like psychiatry, what works for one person is not right, going to work for another person. Right, right. So um, the next thing I would work on is just eating uh, the best that you can, um, yeah. you know, whatever, whatever that means, depending on, you know, what you can access. And then also, you know, if you're really depressed, it's hard to cook. I'm doing a video on that though, too. I have mastered this. I have mastered cooking healthy. <laughs> the, the bagged Trader Joe's pre-cut vegetables <laughs> and a nonstick pan goes a long way. Um, oh, really amazing. fast, low, low, low impact. So, Clean, you know, do whatever you can do to get protein and a lot of vegetables, I guess would be, mm -hmm. is that four or five? Um, and then I would start looking at some other things. The thing that really helps me is um, these supplements called amino acids that people okay. know, uh, like tryptophan is an amino acid. Um, okay. You know, everybody knows that from Turkey. It helps people uh, calm down and, and go to sleep. Um, but there's a lot of other amino acids when you isolate them do other things like tyrosine is another amino acid. It's just, you know, it's a piece of the building block of protein Okay. and tyrosine. It's not expensive. I, you can get it. Like there's like this brand called NutraCost. That's like a third okay. of the price of like the health food store is oh, another awesome. one that, um, helps, you know, it can help with depression and can get you motivated. There's a book called the mood cure by Julia Ross. This is a book that really helped me. Okay. She has, she has a, uh, it's an older book, but for me, after going to a proper naturopath, I found stuff in that book that my naturopath didn't even suggest. Oh, wow. Um, and, and I did it, per I figured out which ones worked for me um, more than uh, anything else. And as a bipolar kind of person, figuring out sleep was crucial. So mm -hmm. um, Same for me. <laughs> Yeah, so I found some things that had no hangover, that didn't have, you know, didn't create a chemical dependence, um, and was somewhat, I mean, 
you know, this is where I spend all of my money. Like I don't go out because <laughs> I use only <laughs> supplements, but that's okay for right now, you know? Um, but you know, I would look at Julia Ross. Um, and then what else? You know, there's a lot of people do really well with herbs. I don't know great directories on herbs, but okay, um, yeah, I don't me either. And um, yeah, I don't know. Like honestly, like a lot of the stuff that naturopaths do, though, a good young, even like um, like nurse practitioner could also mm -hmm. do. Like a lot oh, of the okay. people that are just getting out of med school right now, they have a much more comprehensive idea of health care yeah. than mm -hmm. someone who's been at it a long time. Um, so yeah, just getting someone to run complete labs and then to see if there's like any nutritional deficiencies. Yeah. Um, and then doing that, you know, without meds um just with you know whatever vitamins it says you need to be taking that's like most of what a naturopath does anyway so okay you know at least a good one you know um and then if you do the last thing i will say like not all naturopaths are great you know the naturopaths do get a lot of criticism mm -hmm. um some of it is warranted there are people that go to you know uh they they go to a uh you know, a seminar and then they come back and they start practicing and they don't really know what they're doing. That exists depending on what state you're in. So you have to be a little bit careful that the person okay. has a, a good background. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. That's my yeah. long-winded info dump. Thank you so much. This is, like, in my opinion, like you sharing this information is a form of justice because people have been deprived of this information for so long, especially yeah. marginalized communities. Um, yeah. So I get excited about this stuff too. I mean, this is basically a Bell Let's Talk campaign. <laughs> you know mm. what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like talking about, you know, natural like remedies and dealing with other non kind of pharmaceutical ways of mental wellness. I mean, that could be a whole campaign in and of itself. And it would be a lot more accessible than kind of what we've been yeah. steering people to do before, which is talk about it, jump into the mental health system and everything will be fine. Well, that kind of depends upon your, you know, your economics, your finances. And so, yeah, I kind of think, man, this is the new wave. I think this is, I think this is going to help a lot of people. And so thank you so much for, for what you do and sharing that. Oh, thank thank you for for the, I, that acknowledgement. I never thought about that, but now that you say that, it makes sense because even if you know what you're looking for, going mm -hmm. through the system can help you find the right people. You know, yep. so that's something I really need to think on. And I don't know. I would love to do any kind of crossover articles. Um, I don't know. Let's just let's keep talking. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, if an opportunity presents itself, you know, um, I would love to set up. Um, whatever he could. I mean, even like a webinar uh, with other incredible. experts, mm -hmm. you know, for, especially for, you know, your audience. Um, yeah. That might be cool. Because I'm, st I'm still just a patient, you know, and I bet, I, I mean, I know I could get some naturopath time and then people could ask questions, you know, um, I don't know. There might be a way to, to open it up, you know? I, th I literally think this is going to be groundbreaking because, you know, low-income Black folks, we have no exposure to this information. Right. We don't even know 
to ask a question about it because we don't even know it exists. You know, that's kind of the knowledge inequality gap that's going on, you know, in the mental health system. And so, yeah, I just think, man, it would be just so powerful if we put this information to the people that need it the most, who are maybe shut out of the health system and they can find ways to treat themselves, you know, as maybe they're on the therapist wait list or a psychiatrist wait list. There's ways that they can help themselves as they're getting into the system. I think it would be so great. Do you want to do that together? Oh, yeah, I'm down. I mean, maybe we could do like a live stream. If I could get a doctor, maybe I'm sitting with them and then you're on also on the call or whatever. And then, you know, so you could ask the questions that you know your community needs. And then you maybe we could have like live feedback as well. Yeah, um, that'd be great. There's a lot of ways we could do that and have it like open and free and just give people like that. Because the thing is like, there's a lot that goes little. You don't, you don't necessarily need all of the fancy tests there might be mm-hmm, tests mm-hmm. that your insurance covers there's ways to do it affordably i've been i've had to do it affordably and not to say that there aren't people who are more poor than me but that yeah. said there's a lot of hacks to do a lot with a little so that would be um, amazing yeah. cool let's do it let's keep cool. let's uh let's stay in touch i'm going to edit this uh pod next and then we'll uh, we'll figure out uh, what's what's next? So uh, where where can people find you so they can keep uh, uh, up on um, all of these developments? Yeah, sure. Uh, DepressedWhileBlack.com, uh, Facebook.com slash DepressedWhileBlack, Twitter.com slash DepressedWBlack, and Instagram, um, and it's DepressedWhileBlack as well. So yeah, any any anywhere where there's DepressedWhileBlack, that's where you could find me. Oh, you, you nailed it. That's... Uh... <laughs> You got the copyright. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, cool. Anything else uh, that uh, we should know before we sign off? Oh, I think that's it. Yeah. All right, Imade. I really appreciate your time, and uh, I look forward to uh, to to working on some more stuff and keeping this uh, conversation going. Thank you. This has been an incredible, empowering conversation, and I really appreciate you for creating the space to you know talk about these things. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So grateful for Amadi, grateful for her time and being on the show and also for all of her work um, doing what she does to raise money. So black folks and inpatients can have some of the things that they need. And, you know, also just so important to be changing the conversation about what a mental health campaign can look like from, well, let's just uh, keep talking and maybe one day it'll get better, to saying, hey, we need some support over here. Everybody has individualized needs. You know, this is my community. This is what we need. Can you please help us out? It's that That's a paradigm shift. And it just makes me so excited to see her doing that work. If you agree with her mission, Please throw a couple of shekels in her hat over at depressedwhileblack.com and help us make this difference. If we can make, if we can change how these mental health campaigns are run from let's keep talking and one day it'll get better, everybody, to hey, we're going to make a change. We're going to pitch in together. We're going to make sure our disabled um, mental health folks are, 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 are supported 
and we understand that everybody has individualized needs depending on their background. So we're going to make sure those are met too. That is a game changer. And that is a difference that if I can have one little, if I can do one thing with my life to move that conversation in the right direction just a little bit, I will have lived a meaningful life. So please help her on her campaign. Let's change the conversation and change the conversation by supporting people. And thank you for listening. And, uh, you know, I'm not even going to plug, uh, I'm not even going to plug the website because I just want you to go to depressedwhileblack.com. You know where to find me if you want to find me. But if you're listening to the end, you already know where to find me. Go to depressedwhileblack.com and throw a couple shekels in the hat. Um, we are executive produced by A.V. Flox. With a special thanks to Tom Trottier, Tamara Broadhead, and Patrick Mohan. Um, thanks to all of our GoFundMe supporters, Mecky M, Carolina P, Ryan P, Chip N. Nads, Metal D, Tall, Paul M, uh, Joe R, Ben G, Vinny R, Patty M, Sean H, Linda E, Franklin G, Johnny P, Sophia M, Jackie M, Bob S, Rose P, Gene A, Handy H, Tim W, Stephanie P, Patrick L, Stephen J, Judy B, David L, Stuart M, Jim E, Cash G, The Smo, Alex B, Marilyn S, Colin F, Lauren B, Patricia M, Phil A, and Ivan M. The music is Drugs of Choice by Hans Adam. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. People do get better. Just give yourself the space and the time that you need to heal. I hope you can. Um, if, you, if you need to talk, give me a shout. I'm Zookman at Z-O-O-K-M-A-N-N on the Twitter machine. Um, hang in there, everybody. Zygazunt.